0: The Old Testament story of Joseph found in Genesis 37 through 50 is one of the best known pieces of literature in human history. It has inspired countless works of art, songs, musicals, novelizations. Of course, you're probably familiar with the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat musical. Why has this story so captured people's imaginations? Well, it's a gripping family saga filled with Betrayal and deception, political intrigue with entire nations hanging in the balance. But this is far more than just a good piece of dramatic literature. It's profoundly theological and it's extremely relevant to where we are today. Throughout this story, we see God's hand at work behind the scenes, pulling strings, opening doors, even overriding people's decisions. Warren Weersby wrote, "...in the end..." God builds a hero, saves a family, and creates a nation. That's some pretty compelling stuff. But what's even more compelling is that through this nation, God would save the world. Through this nation, God would bless every family by sending the ultimate hero, Jesus Christ. That alone makes this a story worth studying, don't you think? But... Beyond that, the main theme of Joseph's story, again, that is so relevant for where we are today, is that the Lord is a covenant-making God who always keeps His promise. That means He never leaves us, He never forsakes us, and no matter what life throws our way, God is able to take that and somehow use it for good. And we're going to get to that, but first I want us to look at how this amazing story begins. I hope you have your Bible. And you will turn to Genesis chapter 37. And the first thing that we see is Jacob's family portrait. Family portraits are interesting, don't you think? I love looking through the church directories. And I've got a stack of directories here at First Baptist Church going back uh, to when Dr. Leonard Dupree first came. And it's fun to look back through all those directories and to see how people change. Hairstyles change change hair color changes, fashion changes. But my favorite thing is to look at how children grow up and become adults who now have children of their own. It's an amazing thing. And that's what family portraits do best. They show us the, the love, the growth. They're a precious record of good memories. But sometimes family portraits aren't so kind. I don't know if you've ever seen some of the awkward family photos like this. You know, that's a family photo that kind of is going wrong or this next one uh it's just so hard to get that perfect moment sometimes with those kids and then you talk about fashion wow i mean that that was a fashion choice that's what that was Uh, this last one though makes me really think about jacob's family portrait because you just have those two dogs going at it right there and that is such a picture of jacob's family So family portraits can sometimes reveal something disturbing. And we see this uh, very disturbing family portrait beginning here in chapter 37. Let's begin in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah and his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Or maybe your translation says a coat of many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So, enter the hero. Right here at the very beginning, we see Joseph. A good-looking 17-year-old young man who is the apple of his father's eye. And why is that? Why is he Jacob's favorite son? Well, it's because he was born the firstborn son of Rachel, the love of Jacob's life. Maybe you remember the story that Jacob fell in love with Rachel, was madly in love with her. She was so beautiful, and he worked seven years for her father, Laban, so that he could have her hand in marriage. But Laban pulled a quick one on Jacob and instead gave him her sister, Leah. And Leah wasn't as attractive, and he didn't really love Leah as much, but he had to marry her. But then he said, you know, I'll work for you another seven years if I can also marry Rachel. And so he does that, and Rachel becomes his wife. And she's unable to bear children for quite some time, so he has all of these other sons. And then finally the Lord allows Rachel to give him a son. And so, in Jacob's mind, Joseph, because he was the firstborn son of Rachel, he was really the firstborn heir to the inheritance, to his little kingdom here. And that's really kind of how Jacob thought about his son Joseph. And that's why Jacob gave Joseph these amazing, luxurious robes. Now, the only other place in the Old Testament that this Hebrew phrase is found, this Hebrew phrase that's, richly ornamented robe or coat of many colors is in 2 Samuel 13 where it refers to the daughter of King David, to the garments that she's wearing. So these are royal robes. These are the robes that are so luxurious, they're so expensive that kings and princes and princesses wear them. Obviously, Jacob is saying that his favorite son is destined for so much more than tending sheep. Now in Jacob's mind, he intends for Joseph to run the family business. But God has even greater plans for Joseph. Truly royal plans. And we'll get to that in a few weeks. Now in this next section, we're going to discover that not only did Jacob highly favor Joseph and give him these luxurious robes, but God highly favored Joseph and gave him these prophetic dreams and the ability to interpret these dreams. As his brothers would later call him mockingly Joseph was a dream expert. And we also see in this story that Joseph was a young man of integrity. Jacob trusted his son and put him in charge of his other brothers. And even though it brought conflict between him and his brothers, Joseph told the truth. He stood up for what was right. Now, some people try to paint Joseph as if he's like some kind of tattletale, And perhaps there was some immaturity in how he handled and negotiated the relationship between his brothers and his father. He is, after all, a 17-year-old young man. But as we will see later on in Joseph's story, he really was a man of impeccable integrity and honesty. But that brings us in contrast to the brothers. Verse 2 mentions a bad report that Joseph had brought to his dad about his brothers. Now, we don't know what that report was. We don't know what was going on. Were the brothers perhaps... I don't know, too influenced by the pagan uh, cultures around them? Were they maybe involved in some shady business dealings? Uh, Maybe they were stealing from dear old dad. We just don't know what kind of evil they might have been involved in, but based on what's about to happen in the story, we can deduce that they were probably up to no good. And because of Joseph's position as the favorite son, because he was the next to youngest, and because of his integrity and his dreams... He wasn't exactly the favorite of his brothers. This story is so interesting because these brothers are the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. I mean, these are the twelve men for whom the twelve tribes of Israel are named. Revelation tells us that their names are inscribed on the walls of the new Jerusalem. And yet these men right here are petty. They're vindictive. They're jealous and greedy. They're filled with hatred. They're murderous. Now, Jacob's own example for his sons wasn't the greatest. You may remember that Jacob himself was quite a trickster and a con man back in the day, that he lied to and deceived his own father, that he stole his own brother's birthright and blessing. And now in his old age, it's like it's all come back to haunt him. And now his own sons are deceiving him and taking advantage of him and mistreating their brother. What we see here is the portrait of a very dysfunctional family. I mean, they're as flawed as flawed comes. They would put uh, you know, Jerry Springer to shame. They'd put the Kardashians to shame. I mean, if, if they were alive today, they would get their own reality TV show and it's poor Joseph that'd be voted off the island. Now, maybe you're thinking, yeah, that's my family. We are reality TV ready. Well, I pray that this story can give you some hope. Because while the story has a rough start, And it's going to get worse before it gets better. It has a good ending. God sees this family through some tough times. They make amends. God is glorified. The world is better off because of it. But before we get there, we need to look next in verses 5 through 11 where we'll see Joseph's divisive dreams. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now these two dreams that Joseph had, they couldn't help but get under his brother's skin, right? I mean, the first dream... You know they're all bowing down to him. In the second dream, they're bowing down. Mom and dad are bowing down. I mean, what is up with these dreams? Is Joseph really that arrogant? Does he really think that highly of himself? Well, we certainly have to entertain the possibility, again, because of his youthfulness, that his exuberance and his favored position with his dad, that might have made him a little bit arrogant. Or at at the very least, he's insensitive, right? He's not very sensitive to how his brothers might feel. He's not very diplomatic in his approach. You know, he could have kept these dreams to himself. He could have gone to his mom and dad and shared it and said, why do you think about these dreams? But we have to remember something. And that's that these dreams did come from God. These dreams were prophetic. In fact, we're going to see in a few weeks that these dreams will come true. But the result of Joseph sharing these dreams had a negative effect. They left his brothers filled with even more hatred and more jealousy than before. And even Jacob rebukes Joseph, but he ponders these dreams in his heart. He doesn't forget this. But the end result was envy, bitterness, malice in his brother's heart. And that brings us to the next part of the story. Beginning in verse 12, we see the brother's sinister plot. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And as Israel said to Joseph... As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, and I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. And then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. Now the valley of Hebron is down in the south, down there near the Dead Sea. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, which is up north of Jerusalem, almost up where Samaria was in Jesus' day, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? Well, they've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. Now, there are some interesting details in these verses. First, we see that Joseph's errand was no small task. Again, his dad trusted him implicitly. This was at least a two-day journey to go from Hebron up to Shechem. So he's really putting a lot of faith in his son. His son has obviously proved himself as a man of integrity. But the next thing I notice is that why were these brothers tending their flock near Shechem, two days' journey away from home? And if you go back to Genesis 34, you'll learn that, uh, that their sister Dinah had been kidnapped by the men of Shechem and had been raped. And they went up there to rescue her and they slaughtered quite a few people. So Jacob's family wasn't really well received in that area. So why were they up there tending sheep? Well, when Joseph gets to Shechem, he finds out they're not tending sheep there. Instead, they've gone another day's journey to the northwest to a place called Dothan. Now, where Dothan was located was not very fertile, so it wasn't a great place to graze sheep, but it was a very metropolitan city. It was on a trade route, so the world passed through Dothan. So it begs the question, why were they there? Were they involved in some shady business deals? Were they maybe squandering dad's money, or maybe they were just living it up in the big city on daddy's dime. We don't know, but whatever they were doing there, they were none too happy to see Joseph come walking up wearing that flashy robe. So let's pick that back up in verse 18, see what they do. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So you can just imagine this image in their mind of Joseph walking up with those robes, fresh in their minds or these dreams that he's been telling them about, and they're thinking, who does this kid think he is? Does he really think he's better than us? Does he really think he's going to come here and tell us what to do? Are we going to bow down to him? I don't think so. And when they say, the dreamer, and let's see what comes of his dreams, it's so clear, not only do they resent Joseph because Jacob has given him this coat, they resent Joseph because God has given him these dreams. They hate the coat. They hate the dreams. They're mocking these things. Thankfully, Reuben came to the rescue. In verse 21, it continues, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. I'm sorry, I I got ahead. When Reuben heard this, back up at verse 21. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself there a little bit. So Reuben, here's all of this. Now it's interesting that Reuben would be the brother that would come to Joseph's rescue because Reuben was the oldest son. So all the inheritance, the family business was all supposed to go to Reuben. But it's obvious that Joseph wants that to go to Jacob. If any of the brothers should have wanted to have it in for Joseph, it should have been Reuben. But instead Reuben is not really that bad of a guy and he shows mercy on Joseph so he's like don't kill Joseph let's just rough him up a little bit let's teach him a lesson let's scare him a little bit and then he was going to come back and he was going to set Joseph free and lead him safely home but then we pick it up now in verse 23 so when Joseph came to his brothers then they stripped him of his richly ornamented robe and they took him and threw him into the cistern that was empty with no water in it and then as they sat down To eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, myrrh. They were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hand on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by his brothers pulled Joseph out, up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. That's some pretty cold-hearted stuff, right? And they strip Joseph of this coat that was the sign of his father's love, the sign of his position, it was in some ways it was his identity. And then they threw him into this dry cistern. Now I saw some cisterns in Israel. They're they're deep some of them. And they're narrow at the top. And he's down there at the bottom of this. There's no way out. No way of escape for him. He is at their mercy. And then they sit nearby, just within earshot. And they're eating, and they're laughing, and they're cutting up and ignoring the anguished cries for help coming from the pit. In fact, later on, they remember this episode. In Genesis 42, one of them says, "...we saw how distressed he was when He pleaded with us for His life. But we would not listen. Well, greed overtook jealousy as the dominant emotion and they decided they'd rather have money in their pockets than blood on their hands. And so they sold their brother, in their own words, their own flesh and blood, into slavery in Egypt for eight ounces of silver. Talk about man's inhumanity to man. I mean, these brothers were just about as far away from our Old Testament reading as you can get. Remember Old Testament reading? Psalm 133 says how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. Well, for these, it's more like how evil and repulsive it is for brothers to betray each other in jealousy and greed and hatred and murderous intentions. And if all that wasn't bad enough, now they're about to engage in the cruelest of deceptions. Let's look at verse 29. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. That was a sign of grief. He was beside himself in anguish. And he went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? And then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it and see whether it's your son's robe. But he recognized it. And said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. This is the nature of sin. It gives birth to more and more sin. James talks about this. In James chapter 1, he says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Their evil desire for money, for vengeance, their jealousy for Joseph's place of honor conceived an evil plan which gave birth to sin and grew up into death. Not Joseph's physical death, but he was as dead to them. And, and Jacob, their father, was so grief-stricken, it was as if he was dead, emotionally, relationally. And as we're going to see later on, Jacob carried this grief as a heavy burden for many, many years. They killed their relationship with their brother. And now these lies festering in their hearts. Can you just imagine what it must have been like for them to try to comfort their dad, knowing full well Joseph wasn't dead. Can you imagine when they looked each other in the eye, the guilt and the shame that must have come up in their hearts? And all of this caught Jacob off guard. He wasn't prepared for this grief. He never thought he'd be mourning his favorite son. Just as it caught Joseph off guard. I mean, that morning that Jacob sent him on that errand... He never thought that a few days later he'd be stripped of everything he was, everything he had, everyone and everything he knew, and hauled off to slavery in Egypt. He wasn't expecting that. Just like none of us a few months ago would ever have expected that we'd be sheltering at home today from a deadly worldwide pandemic, that our strong economy would be on the verge of collapse, that the record low employment would suddenly become record high employment. None of us thought that this morning we'd have to be worshiping from home over the internet or that I'd be standing here the Sunday after Easter preaching to an empty sanctuary. This caught us off guard. Life is like that. It can surprise us in, in wonderful ways. It can surprise us in terrible ways. Maybe you've been caught off guard by tragedy. A cancer diagnosis. Divorce papers. A pink slip. Word of an unexpected death in your family. Maybe like Joseph, you felt betrayed, lied to, stabbed in the back, and forgotten. Like Joseph, maybe you found yourself in a pit of despair, and you feel like there's no easy way out. And maybe like Joseph's story, your story is going to get worse before it gets better. And Joseph is going to go from betrayed and abandoned to enslaved, entrapped, and imprisoned. We never know what tomorrow holds. We can't see what's around the next bend. We don't know when we can return to life as normal. We don't even know what that normal is going to look like. But there's one thing about being at the bottom of a pit, and that's that the only way you can look is up. Don't give up. Look up. So Joseph never gave up. No matter the challenge, the setbacks, or the disappointments, he never gave up. He never backed down. He never let his heart heart get hard. He never allowed bitterness to take root. You may say, well, how did he do that? Because of this last verse. Because of God's providential presence in his life. Look at verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now you may say, well, David, there's not much there in that verse. You're right, it's more its more of one of those kind of next time on the life of Joseph than anything, right? It's setting you up for what comes next, but that's the beauty of it. Something comes next. This isn't the end of Joseph's story. In this one verse, there's an amazing promise that God is at work behind the scenes. He's about to do something amazing. And that hope, born out of his relationship with God, is what allowed Joseph to do far more than survive. It allowed him to thrive. Joseph's story may start out in a pit of despair, but it's going to end with him as the prince of Egypt. What his brothers meant to harm him, God meant to for His good and the saving of many lives, even those wretched, no-good brothers. Later on in the story, as things keep seeming to get worse, not only for Joseph, but also for Jacob, Jacob at one point says, everything is against me. Maybe you feel just like that. You feel like everything is against you that life just can't seem to go right. It just seems like everything keeps falling down around you, and just when you think it can't get any worse, it's like life says, oh yeah, watch this. Maybe like Jacob, you think, everything is against me. But the key verse of Joseph's entire story in Genesis fifty twenty is a direct rebuttal to Jacob's lamentation. In fact, Joseph, in speaking to his brothers, says... You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So whatever someone else may say to you or do to you to harm you in any way, whatever difficulties life may throw at you, God is powerful enough and loving enough to take that and to turn it around, not only for your good, but even for the saving of many lives. Paul put it this way in Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now that doesn't mean that God has caused this pandemic, or your failed marriage, or your lost job. God didn't engineer or approve of the sins of Jacob's sons, of their lives. God had no part in that. We can't blame God for the consequences of our choices or the choices of others. But it does mean that our great God is so powerful and so loving that He will always work out His purpose in our life even when we are at our worst, even when other people are at their worst, even when we most feel the effects of this sinful, broken world. Max Licato wrote a study of the life of Joseph entitled, You'll Get Through This. And I discovered that the videos for that are actually available right now on Amazon Prime. So you could go, if you've got Amazon Prime, you can go watch those videos. But in his study, Lucado wrote what he calls the Survivor's Creed based on the events in Joseph's life. And it goes like this. You'll get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. But God will use this mess for good. In the meantime, don't be foolish or naive, but also don't despair. Because with God's help, you'll get through this. I'm excited for us to journey together through the rest of Joseph's life these next few weeks. And we're going to see in each chapter of the story the truth that Joseph was going to get through this. That God was with him. That despite all the appearances, God was in control and was using all of Joseph's ups and downs to weave together a beautiful story. That's what God does. God takes the threads of evil and sin and of heartache and disappointment and fear, and if we let Him, He can take those threads and weave them together into a beautiful tapestry. The question is will we let Him? Will we let go of the threads of our lives, of all the sin, guilt, shame, the anger, the fear, the bitterness? Will we let go of those threads and trust them to God that He will somehow take them and make something beautiful? Out of them The Bible calls this repentance and faith. It's how we become children of God. When we repent, we turn, we turn from our sin, from our, our self-reliance, from our own efforts. We let go of the hurt and the anger of what others have done to us, and we turn in trust. we place our hands in Jesus, and we trust Him to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And that's to rescue us out of that pit. To put our feet on the path that God has laid out for us and we follow Him down that path every day. Have you done that? Have you begun that kind of journey with Jesus? If you've not, I pray you would do it today. If you have any questions about that, if you would like today to pray and give your heart and life to Jesus, it's very simple. You have to first recognize you're in a pit. You're in sin, you're lost, and, you're, and, you're, and you're, you're helpless. You can't get out on your own, no matter how hard you try. You just cry out to Him. And you say, Jesus, I believe that You're the Son of God who came and died on the cross for my sins and rose from the grave because You love me. Forgive me of my sin and take this mess of my life that I'm in. Bring me out of this pit. Set my feet on Your path. Make something beautiful out of all of this and help me to live for You. The Bible says if you would do that, you'll be saved. You'll be rescued. And you'll be a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God because He loves you. To my fellow Christians, maybe you're at a low point in your life and you think, man, I just don't know if my back's up against the wall and I just don't think I can go any further. Listen. No matter what the hurt, the frustration, the anger, or the disappointment, turn to Jesus. He's always there ready to take those broken or breaking pieces and put them back together again. Let Him make something good and beautiful out of whatever the mess is. It doesn't just have to be the coronavirus period that we're in right now. Whatever it is, give it to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your great love for us, the love that we see in this story and the stories to come. God, we can know and trust that no matter what is going on in our life, whether it's our fault, someone else's fault, or no one's fault at all, you are there, the good shepherd who walks with us through it all, who protects us and who guides us by your rod and your staff, who leads us beside still waters, who longs to make us lay down in green pastures. You want to prepare a table before us in the middle of all the craziness and all the the things that seem to come up against us. Your goodness and Your mercy will pursue us every day until we find ourselves in Your house forever. Father, help us to trust You that You are a good, good Father. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.